Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 197, The Story of Henry VII. I have spoken many times of the network I belong to, Agora Podcast Network. Now, I've done this episode ahead of time and therefore do not know what our featured podcast is this month, but hop along to the website agorapodcastnetwork.com or the Agora Facebook site and it will, without doubt, be a hummer with more than an unusually high level of ding. It has now become customary to start each new reign with something of a historiography of the new monarch. Since we are all now, after close to 200 episodes, surely good medievalists now, we know that customs are the lifeblood of a conservative world and tawdry innovation is to be resisted. And so this is what this episode will be. What history has said about Henry Seventh. It is equally part of our laws and customs to consult the great oracles of history. The original 1968 version of the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England from the glorious town of Loughborough. And Seller and Yeatman's noble 1066 and all that. So I have visited the vaults here underneath the shed. It's been a while since I've been there, so I cleared away the cobwebs, invoked the deities and entered the code. Ladybird is quite chatty. Henry VII was a wise king. He realised that in the past the country had suffered because it was poor. Taxes had often been too high and the money so gained had been wasted. He determined to put an end to expensive wars abroad and make taxation fair at home. This is accompanied by Frank Hampson's picture of Henry being crowned on the field of Bosworth, as you might expect. OK, so that's very positive. Seller and Yeatman, 1066 and all that, provide their normal clarity. During the Wars of the Roses, the kings became less and less memorable, sometimes even getting in the wrong order, until at last one of them was nothing but some little princes smothered in the tower, while the last of all even attempted to give his kingdom to a horse. It was therefore decided to have some Welsh kings. Henry VII was a miser, and very good at statecraft. They're both reasonably positive, therefore. Quite a lot of talk of money, it has to be said, but he sounds clever and effective, does Henry VII. Let us also refer to Winston, shall we? In a way, great writer though he was, Churchill as a historian was very much the inheritor of the Whig tradition, and indeed the memorable history which Seller and Yeatman were teasing. This thin justification of me referring to Winnie, of course, is largely to give me the opportunity to roll out the Winnie impression. Winnie was very much of the traditional view, therefore, that after years of Seller and Yeatman's wreckage and carnage, Henry VII rode into town like the maid and cleaned everything up. He created the platform from which the glories of the Tudor dynasties sprang. He represents the start of a new modern era, an escape from the grubby and dark medievalism of the Plantagenets. His skill and wisdom in transmuting medieval institutions 
inter organs of modern rule has not been questioned. Among the princes of Renaissance Europe, he is not surpassed in achievement and fame by Louis XI of France or Ferdinand of Spain. In summary, Winnie is a fan. Actually, Winnie's voice is much higher than that and he's got a slight lisp. But anyway, in this case, we should probably start with Henry himself, actually, and his contribution to history's judgment. Since more than anyone, maybe since Alfred the Great, Henry was successful in creating his own propaganda story, enthusiastically aided and abetted by his Tudor successors. And you can understand why he'd need to do this. Henry was, after all, a penniless adventurer from Brittany with a dodgy passport and a bar sinister in his genealogy. So he needed a story to get him from the wrong side of the bed to the right side of the bed. There are three elements to this story, and actually we're used to it day to day when new bosses come in to take up their new job. It's a process. Firstly, you need to rubbish the predecessor. Actually, it's quite important in the modern day to be careful about this one, since it's harder to get people attainted in the world of business. But in Henry's day, that was much less of an issue. Secondly, you need to prove why you are a legitimate occupant of the throne. Hence the weary trawl through the first six months of a new boss, listening to them tell you about all the brilliant things they did at such and such previous job. Am I sounding jaded? Anyway, step three, build the new bright story. Why things are going to be great around here from now on. Step one, therefore, was Henry's Bill of Attainder, which was a model of simplicity. The body of it goes like this, and I think you might have heard it before. Wherefore, our sovereign Lord, according unto his blessed remembrance this high and great charge, adjoined to his royal majesty and estate, not oblivious, nor putting out of his godly mind the unnatural, mischievous and great perjuries, treasons, homicides and murders, in shedding of infants' blood with many other wrongs, odious offences and abominations against God and man, in especial are said Sovereign Lord committed and done by Richard, late Duke of Gloucester. Ouch, and if you will, burn. Consider the previous regime duly rubbished. More challenging for Henry was to establish his pedigree. Now, while out in France and Brittany, as he'd been for all his adult life, Henry had made a commitment to marry Elizabeth of York. And actually, it looks a little more than that. It looks like a promise to rule jointly with the inheritor of the line of York. But pretty much as soon as Stanley had picked the crown up from the thorn bush, Henry was regretting any such promise. In fact, as far as lineage was concerned, he based his claim on his own Lancastrian descent, deeply dicey though that was. Since all the Beauforts had indeed been recognised as legitimate, they'd been specifically barred from the throne, which was a little inconvenient. Actually, Henry chose to emphasise a more visceral, basic basis for his right, right of conquest. Through his victory on the battlefield and the slaying of his opponent, God had demonstrated his support for Henry's right, and he needed no other. This, it has to be said, is a dangerous doctrine, with a very real possibility of encouraging any other Tom, Dick or Harriet to try their hand. But Henry was deeply aware of how dicey his lineage was, and desperate to avoid handing control or legitimacy across to the House of York. Much has been made of the fact that it took Henry four months to get married to Elizabeth. Actually, four months 
doesn't seem that bad to me. As far as I can see from my own experience, it can take that long for the bride's shoes to be selected, let alone organising a complete ceremony. The thing I would rather focus on is that it took over two years until 1487 to get Elizabeth crowned Queen of England, safely far behind the coronation of the real power in the land, Henry. So, stage three was to build a vision, a story that people could get behind. There was the odd false step in this regard. One of the things that Henry did at one stage was to try the old trick of rehabilitating the memory of Henry VI, giving his body a grander home and bigging up his saintliness, with stories about, I don't know, the child that was saved after being run over by a wagon and all that, with the idea of selling a story of a return to healthy Lancastrian principles. This was largely a failure and pretty soon dropped. Some, of course, did indeed pick up the cult. Bad kings seemed to make very good saints in medieval England. But there was always a dangerous side to this particular line with Henry VI, along the lines of, what, you want us to venerate this numpty who put his country through 40 years of mayhem, death and destruction on account of his rubbishness? So the alternative Henry went for was to keep referring back to Henry V. In here, at least, he was getting a bit more aspirational and inspirational. Henry V was the kind of guy who could get behind and give lusty cheers, cry, Harry, England and St George, and grab a tankard from the hands of an equally lusty wench. Of course, in terms of descent, it was appallingly dodgy, since Henry VII was descended from Henry V's wife, so no blood relation at all. But it was at least a good story. But the big Tudor myth the one that has in fact survived to a large degree through the centuries and into the writing of Winston Churchill, was the story of the man who came to save England from herself. When Henry came, he came with a number of badges that he could use to promote helpful stories. He could use Margaret Beaufort's portcullis symbol to emphasise continuity with the House of Beaufort. Far more, he used the Red Dragon of Cadwallader. Now this had originally had the handy purpose as he marched through Wales of convincing the Welsh to support one of their own. The French have had a go at the throne. Now it's the turn of the Welsh, that sort of thing, before we hand over to the Scots. Oh, and the Germans have expressed an interest, by the way, sometime in the future. One day, maybe the English will have an English royal family, who knows. To be more serious, the Welsh responded to Henry's claims very well. And by golly, after a couple of centuries of inequality, they needed a helping hand. Actually, the Welsh stay noticeably loyal to the monarchy all through Tudor and Stuart times, something Charles I will very much profit from in the Civil War. However, once being ensconced on the English throne, being Welsh helped Henry not one little tiny bit. In fact, sadly, would have been something of a drawback. Had it not been for one legend... The Welsh owned that everybody loved and wanted a piece of. The story of Arthur. So Henry sold that story for all he was worth. Here was a spiritual descendant of the great Arthur come to save the realm and take her into the glories of a new future. Even Henry's first son and heir would be called Arthur. What appeared at the coronation was a red rose. Now in fact the symbol of the red rose had not been a common one for Tudors up to that time nor indeed had it been popular amongst the Lancastrians and Beauforts, but it had been there, it had been around. But at Henry's coronation, the Red Rose was everywhere. 
and the new symbol was quickly taken up. For example, the poem appeared in the year 1485 on the 22nd day of August. The tusks of the boar were blunted, and the red rose, avenger of the white, shines on us. The boar, of course, being Richard's badge as Duke of Gloucester and the white rose of York. Soon became clear why Henry was bigging up a rather obscure Lancastrian symbol. In January 1486, the marriage of Henry and Elizabeth took place, and a new rose appeared, what became known as the Tudor rose, a large red rose dominating the symbol, with a smaller white rose at its middle. Henry then went on tour with his new wife Elizabeth, and York was on the schedule as well it might, given its Richard-loving past. He needn't have worried anyway. The good burghers of York were suitably obsequious. Richard, Richard, who? <laughs> so I must be thinking of someone else. Anyway, Henry had given York strict instructions about how they would receive the royal couple, and they faithfully enacted the pageant as required. At its heart was a mechanical device with a massive red rose, which emerged from the white rose, and finally a crown descended from the clouds to cover the whole scene. The message was clear: Henry had united the houses of York and Lancaster. Just don't forget which is the senior partner. So the message was that Henry had united the two houses into one new house, that of Tudor. But it was more than that. By so doing, Henry was the saviour of the kingdom and his people because he had come with a firm hand to end the chaos of civil war. Finally, England was able to achieve some stability. And through Henry's firm rule, the glories of the Tudor age were made possible, and this is a theme taken up with enthusiasm by Henry's Tudor successors and their historians. Certainly, they used the new symbol without let or indeed without hindrance, and it started straight away on his death. Bishop Fisher, at Henry's funeral, praised Henry's political wisdom and the respect, peace, and prosperity it had brought him at home and abroad. Now, a funeral is, of course, hardly the pace anyway to start laying into somebody's reputation, so you would expect nothing neggy. But his comments were very much reinforced by Tudor historians. Polydore Virgil was first in line. Henry was shrewd, prudent, knew his own mind, and was never overawed or dominated by his counselors. He cherished justice, maintained order, was religious. But actually, Virgil was honest enough to point out some grit in the oyster. Quote, But all these virtues were obscured latterly by avarice. Edward Hall, again in the 16th century, tried to squash that objection by arguing that yes, Henry might have shown a bit of avarice, but it was a necessary evil, one that paled into insignificance against Henry's great achievement of pacifying the realm. Then we get to a bloke called Francis Bacon, whose career is seriously no yoke. Philosopher, historian, scientist, statesman, jurist, orator—pretty much every talent and career except toilet cleaning. Bacon was sacked by King James the First, and so in 1622 he may have written about Henry the Seventh in order to demonstrate to James that he had all the political insight that King James absolutely needed, so he could give him a job back. If so, it didn't work. Since Francis was banished to the political darkness, but his works of Henry the Seventh basically established the template that survived to this day. More than any single person since Henry himself, Bacon is responsible for how we view him. Bacon painted a picture of a serious, reserved, austere figure, 
skilful, prudent, statesmanlike. He was determined to achieve dynastic security and bent his energies towards that, and of course achieved his aims. Along the way, he restored the power and prestige of the monarchy. There was, Bacon wrote, no such thing as any great or mighty subject who might eclipse or overshadow the imperial power. And by taking on the overmighty subjects of the Wars of the Roses, Henry created a service nobility that was subservient to the crown and organised to do its bidding. And at the same time, Henry was clear-sighted enough to use the right men for the right tasks, using men of the middle sort who could drive through his changes and reforms rather than being dependent on the nobility. Crucially, Henry's success in re-establishing the power and prestige of the monarchy was underpinned by fiscal prudence, which restored the royal finances, and a refusal to be distracted by vainglorious foreign adventures, which would have once again emptied the treasury. And as if all of this was not enough, he was a lawmaker without peer, except maybe the daddy himself, Edward I. And in the application of justice, he restored law and order, expanding the role of the justices of the peace and cracking down on the old hardy perennial of magnates' retinues and their pernicious maintenance of their indentured men. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. All in all, something of a paragon then. There were criticisms as well, though. Bacon saw Henry as a king limited in foresight, focusing on solving the problems straight in front of him rather than thinking long-term. And again, he took him to task for obsessive avarice. Well, phew. Just boil all this down, add seasoning and distill the essence, essentially, the picture is of a very effective but rather grey and unlikable king. There's really not a lot of sex about Henry. He's a successful, cold, calculating automaton the kind of guy you'd not like to meet on a dark night, potentially aware of black leather and multiple studs and given to taking Rottweilers for a walk down the high street. Bacon didn't use any of these words, I hasten to add, but hopefully you get the picture, a man more feared than loved. In his excellent book, The Winter King, Thomas Penn noted that he's the one king that Shakespeare didn't cover. There's no poetry or drama in him, I suppose. So I bet this is all helping you look forward to the next few episodes of The History of England. Anyway, this is the picture that has survived, as you can see from Winnie's quote. Even when the 19th century historians published new documents, the story remained unchanged. A historian called William Bush, for example, actually laid into Bacon himself and very adequately exposed Bacon's motivation to get himself a job rather than bring truth, light and justice to the study of Henry. And yet, the story and analysis remained broadly the same some nuance began to creep in as the focus of the debate changed in the 20th century. Historians dug into the mechanics of government and began to emphasise continuity between Edward IV and Henry VII. So this thing specifically about there being a new form of centralised monarchy 
began to be recognised as becoming truly revolutionary only in the 1530s, through famous works by the super-famous G.R. Elton. Emphasising continuity is kind of coded language for, ah, Henry VII didn't really do anything different, did he? Bit of a plodder, really. K.B. McFarlane questioned one of the fundamental assumptions. Actually, when we say that Henry squished these over-mighty subjects, did he really need to? Actually, this is a really good question, so stand back from Henry, ignore the fact that his claim to the throne is a little threadbare, and notice that really there are no credible alternatives whatsoever. Richard has no kiddiewinkles. Edward IV's sons have been totaled. Seriously, what did Henry have to worry about? And anyway, actually, the idea of the cause of the Wars of the Roses being all about overmighty subjects had been holed under the waterline by then anyway. It was recognised that this was essentially about Henry VI's incompetence. So what need to squish overmighty subjects? Along with this, of course, is the realisation that the nobility were far from being these folks desperate to seize the power of the king. They could have done that well enough in the time of the minority of Henry VI if they'd wanted to. No, far from it, the nobility were actually the natural allies of the king. G.R. Elton was a good old traditional historian, despite his fame, a man deeply convinced that people shaped human history. And he was interested in the relevance of the accusation of avarice. And he had a bit of a barney with a chap called J.P. Cooper. And this came to an equally fascinating challenge to Henry's reputation. In the second half of his reign, Henry visits financial penalties on his nobility. He used the ideas of bonds for good behaviour with some ferocity, so that his nobility are all creeping about, trying not to give him an excuse to ruin them. Fine. Bacon represented this as restoring the power of the monarchy, but it looks suspiciously like tyranny. Extend that a bit and you get the modern debate. Basically, rather than being the man who restored the monarchy, Henry took a golden position where there were no options and everyone was on his side and came hideously close to alienating everyone and messing the whole thing up. Basically, the argument goes, England was not inherently stable in 1485 and yet Henry is troubled by threats all his life. Lambert Simnel, Perkin Warbeck, the Suffolk brothers. Because basically, he couldn't manage his way out of a paper bag. Unlike Edward IV, a natural at the art of managing people, Henry VII was a hardened, unsubtle martinet, incapable of trust. Christine Carpenter challenged more assumptions in her 1997 book on the Wars of the Roses. So take the argument that Henry restored royal finances. Well, by the time Henry pegged it, his income was 113,000 quid. Well, actually, that's pants. Richard himself might well have had income of 120,000 and Edward IV, 160,000. So tell me again why we're getting so excited about Henry VII and his financial prudence. Especially since he started his reign with all the lands of York and Lancaster, an exceptionally complete portfolio of crown lands. Sure, Henry hired clever men to run his regime, but these men were basically crooks. His son's first act was to have the two principal characters executed. Henry's regime was a bureaucrat's paradise that preyed on his own people. Basically, Henry was incapable of generating a noble consensus and had to rule by tyranny instead. 
And while we're on it, the law and order thing, where does that come from? By crushing the magnates and restricting their freedom of action, Henry ensured that their resources were not available to be used to maintain law and order, and he put nothing effective in its place. OK, so you might prefer a more modern system of centralised royal justice, but in the absence of that, it was the magnates who maintained order on behalf of the king. And now, they weren't able to do that. Law and order suffered, robbery and villainy flourished. There is therefore a line of thought that goes completely to the other extreme. Far from being the dull, grey, dour and unlikable but highly effective saviour of England... Henry was either vicious or incompetent and came as near as damn it to seeing the whole country blow up in his face and return to the chaos of the Wars of the Roses. Now that, I am sure you will agree, is quite a turnaround. The sort of standard work on Henry VII was written by S.B. Crimes in 1972 and updated in 1999. He still takes very much the traditional line, very much agrees with Francis Bacon. Christine Carpenter's book was published in 1997, so really the new debate about Henry is very current. By the way, the historian S.B. Crimes has the most unpronounceable English name in the world ever. You can advise me. It is actually spelt C-H-R-I-M-E-S. Okay? Tell me how to deal with that. Anyway, so that's the historiography of Henry And to finish the episode, why don't we talk about what kind of man Henry was personally. Now, one of the features of the Tudor period is that we have much more source material and a substantially greater concentration on producing history. So we are blessed you will be delighted to learn with a very detailed description of the man from Polydor Virgil. His body was slender but well-built and strong. His height above the average. His appearance was remarkably attractive and his face was cheerful, especially when speaking. His eyes were small and blue, his teeth few, poor and blackish. His hair was thin and white, his complexion sallow. So much for his physical description, I'll come back to Polly in a moment on his qualities. But before you do, close your eyes and think of Henry VII for me for a moment. Not if you're driving. But just close your eyes, if not, and try and visualise him. Okay, are you there? Now, you're probably visualising someone rather scrawny and pretty dour and miserable. Because that's the picture that survives. There are four contemporary likenesses, you can open your eyes now, which are on the website, by the way. Three of which are very much at the end of his life when he was already ill, and one which is death mask, which by the time he wasn't feeling at his best either. Those three are the ones everyone knows, or other ones based on those. So it's not surprising that he has a rather dour reputation. He's fighting through all these tired-looking images. So for an alternative image, let me recommend the fourth which survives, which is a really good sketch when he's much younger. I'm not saying it'll transform your view, but it'll give you a different perspective. When Henry won the Battle of Bosworth, he was 28 years old, so still a young man. By and large, Henry impressed people, especially foreign visitors, who have left us opinions. But firstly, on with Polydor. His spirit was distinguished, wise and prudent. His mind was brave and resolute and never, even at the moments of the greatest danger, never deserted him. He had a most pertinacious memory. 
Withal, he was not devoid of scholarship. In government, he was shrewd and prudent, so that no one dared to get better of him through deceit or guile. I had to look the word pertinacious up, by the way, holding tenaciously to a purpose, course of action or opinion, resolute. You lot probably knew that anyway. This quality of quiet, self-contained authority comes across from other sources. In 1497, Italian visitors reported that he evidently has a most quiet spirit. In 1504, a Spanish visitor reported back to the most Catholic monarchs, Certainly there could be no better school in the world than the society of such a father as Henry VII. He is so wise and attentive to everything, nothing escapes his attention. Now, as we have discussed, the word avarice sticks to Henry like my hound sticks to me at mealtime. The word miser has also been thrown at him. The two are different, I might point out. I don't think anyone would argue that Henry VII spent much of his energy screwing money out of people. But it's equally evident that he knew how to have a good time. Like his son, he was mad for the hunt, a common enough passion amongst kings, but clearly noting to combat the view of Henry as just a grey, bookish kind of man. In addition, he's clearly a gambler, losing money at dice, tennis, archery. Now, I am not suggesting for a moment that evidence of gambling is evidence that someone is necessarily a good bloke. Don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is that he clearly took part in sports. He is clearly not so reserved that he didn't interact with his court and family and have a bit of a hoolie from time to time. And all the foreign visitors, even the negative ones actually, admit that he knew how to throw a good party, as Polly, Polydor, reports. He was gracious and kind and was as attentive to his visitors as he was easy of access. His hospitality was splendidly generous. He was fond of having foreigners at his court and he freely conferred favours upon them. Visitors duly reported on the magnificence of his court and the wonder of tapestries and art, the quality of the music, including Erasmus, who made the same comment in 1499, for example. Henry was brought up in France and knew those customs. He impressed visitors with his erudition and learning and languages. And particularly, they comment on how well they're treated personally by Henry. Henry threw numerous celebrations and jousts, just like any other medieval monarch. However, there was one Spanish visitor, de Ayala, in 1498, who had some negative things to say. And the worst was this. He likes to be spoken of and to be highly appreciated by the whole world. He fails in this because he's not a great man. He spends all the time he is not in public or in his council writing the accounts of his expenses with his own hand. The same writer remarks on the great influence of his mother, Margaret Beaufort, which is a matter I'll come back to in the next episode. But to note here that the bond between mother and son is clearly very strong. But here the writer is certainly challenging the image of a man with the authority and foresight that Polly spoke of. He's also pointing to the impression of avarice and miserliness in the accounts thing. Actually, it's an important quote. The miser thing, I think, is harsh. Henry knew how to spend money when required. But we know from other records that Henry was indeed personally involved in the accounts on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes this is seen as a good thing. Look how hard-working he is. Attention to detail. But alternatively... 
Really? Should a king be wasting his time on this sort of level of detail? Hate it or loathe it, people really didn't seem to like Henry. De Ayala again. His crown is nevertheless undisputed and his government strong in all respects. He is disliked. Bishop Fisher implicitly accepts this and the suspicion and distrust that surrounded him in his later days, in his funeral oration when he said, Ah, King Henry, King Henry, if thou were alive again, many a one that is present now would pretend. A full great pity and tenderness upon thee. He was the most ardent supporter of our faith. The summary appears to be that Henry was basically conventionally pious, did what he needed to do, but that his interests were on earth and in the present. Religion wasn't a great passion. Finally, it is also worth remembering at all stages and in all places that Henry had been through a troubled 28 years. As de Ayala wrote, The king looks old for his years, but young and sorrowful for the life he has led. And it would not be surprising if the worry and uncertainty and vicissitudes of fortune had not had an impact on his outlook. You'd expect him to want to build his security against further misfortune. You'd expect him to be careful and suspicious. So, what do we have? We have a man who is certainly no cipher, not someone you could ignore or overawe, who keeps and holds his own counsel, perhaps without any great intellectual pyrotechnics, but he's nonetheless a well-educated, erudite man. He's an active man, taking part in sports and celebrations and music. But nonetheless, there is a strong sense of the dark side in Henry. Everyone agrees that his is an obsessively avaricious nature. There is a quietness and stillness about him that is at once impressive, but also menacing. Francis Bacon wrote that Henry was infinitely suspicious, and called him a dark prince. And this has stuck to Henry VII, probably with some justice. Even if you judge him kindly, he's a man difficult to like and to get enthusiastic about. Okay, dokily, next week it's the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 15, The Noble Wolf. And then in a fortnight, it's back to the history of England, time to launch off on Henry VII proper, and look at the rather vexed question of mother-stroke-mother-in-law question that runs throughout Henry's reign. Many thanks to my donators, my monthly donators, first-time donators. Many thanks to all of you for listening, taking part on iTunes, Facebook, website, and all that sort of thing. Good luck, and have a fantastic week.